Welcome to On the Spot with Melinda Garvey, the On the Dot interview series where we sit down with some of the most intriguing and interesting women to watch featured in our daily email newsletter and podcast, Four Minutes with On the Dot. Make sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode of On the Spot, available every Thursday on your favorite podcast streaming service. Today, I'm chatting with the co-founder of Austin Cocktails, Kelly Gaysink. Without further ado, let's start the show. Hello, everyone. I'm excited to be here with you today at On the Spot with Melinda Garvey. And today we are interviewing another wonderful entrepreneur, Kelly Gaysink, who is the co-founder of Austin Cocktails. So I know that when I said the word cocktails, everybody just perked right up because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we should be like having clinking glasses and we should hear tinkling ice in the background. I, I thought about it. <laughs> for this one, for sure. But we're really excited to have you here, Kelly. Kelly's had an amazing entrepreneurial journey and she's here to just share her story and advice and tips and tricks of how she's managed to get through it all. So welcome, Kelly. Great to have you here with us today. Good to be here. So I want to kind of go back a little bit before we talk about Austin Cocktails, because when I was looking on your LinkedIn and just figuring out the timeline of everything, I realized, oh my gosh, I knew you had co-founded two companies prior to Austin Cocktails, but you co-founded your first company literally right out of college. I mean, you were super young and even your second one, you were really young. And if I'm not mistaken, both those companies were bought out. So I'd love just to kind of, for you to talk a little bit about that sort of did you always think you were going to be an entrepreneur? Did you stumble into this? How was that being such a young woman? Um, well, I think it was incredible timing. I think it was one of the most wonderful strokes of luck of my life. I graduated from Stanford in 1997, which was really sort of throwing into the tech boom when big, large entities were kind of throwing money at younger people who were coming out of Silicon Valley. So I think it was this moment in history that's definitely very distinct than what it sounds like millennials are experiencing. But, you know, my first contextual point was this roaring economy where really the only limit was whatever your imagination couldn't think of. And so um, I got this random opportunity to join these three other co-founders and start this tech company. And, you know, it's, I think it's kind of like every young person's dreams. You just throw yourselves to the wolves and figure out what you need to figure out. And you're young enough where you, you know, think you can do anything. You have no idea about what you don't know and you just go at it. And so I really do think it was this moment in history that was such a stroke of luck to be born into. Um, so that's sort of the big picture. And then our, my father is an entrepreneur. So I grew up around that. It always seemed very natural. It wasn't anything that was unappealing or unusual to me. I think when you're around something, it becomes familiar and less scary. So I don't even think I thought it through that much. But as soon as I started those companies, I got exposure to the realization that you know, companies and products and things are built not from this perfectly, you know, devised map when you, you know, came out of the womb with this special knowledge and then you went to a great school and then you went to McKinsey and you created a perfect business plan and you followed it to perfection. It was wonderful to realize that things are a lot less of a straight line. And I think that that was probably more than the experience of, you know, just sort of the nuts and bolts of things. I think the greatest thing I took away was that knowledge that really, really big things are built through the accumulation of just very small steps and, you know, with tons of mistakes and great decisions in between. And what a lesson to learn at such a young age, because I feel like 
you know, one of the things that we talk to a, a lot of millennial women and, and they're struggling right now. And I think they're feeling like, what is this path? How do we find that path? And so it is a gift to, to learn that so young. And then you did it a second time. So you had a, a second round at being a co-founder again at a very young age, so which is amazing. And then you kind of went on a little bit of a different path. Were you in an investment company or what was the... So the first company we started was a software company and that was ultimately acquired by a publicly traded company. And, they, and we told them, we said, you know, we think our software has a lot of other interesting applications. And they said, great, we'll see that company and you help us with the transition. And you guys launched that one. So we launched the second one. So it's the same team. And that was ultimately sold to a publicly traded company as well. And right when that was happening was about the time that things were crashing. So that was another just incredible stroke of timing in my professional career. And I had this idea that I wanted to go to grad school. And for some reason, I did not want to go to business school, which would have been the really natural step from there. But I really wanted to get my master's in public policy. And in a lot of ways, it was sort of this hedge on maybe doing a PhD in economics, which I thought maybe I wanted. So I actually ended up going to grad school and I got my master's in public policy at Harvard. And my first day of school was 9-11, which was just the most fascinating time you can possibly imagine to be in public policy grad school. So because all those sort of theoretical questions that you're asking, and they just take on a totally different context or contour. So um, that was an incredible two years. And I, I took on some positions in economic analysis and then had this opportunity to start a fund of hedge funds, which is, again, a very unnatural, not intuitive step that many people take. But My dad had actually had a company that sold hedge fund trading platforms to hedge funds. And he said, you know, this is a really interesting space. You should look into building a fund of funds. And long story short, we ended up starting a fund of hedge funds. And that was a position I had from for the years that sort of spanned right before having a family through our first child being three years old. So it was in a lot of ways sort of the biggest professional plateau, I would say, because I just, I had so much more to learn, but it was all being self-taught and I couldn't teach myself anything anymore. But it was also this great way to transition to balance being a parent and, and being professional. Excellent. Well, and I want to kind of just talk about, not, not to harp on how young you were doing all this, but I think that having that perspective as a young woman, I'd love for you to maybe give some advice to millennial women who I think are, as I mentioned, are struggling. We actually recently did a survey of, of millennial women and talked to them about sort of how they were feeling in their careers. And they're feeling very behind and very stuck and that they can't move forward. And I guess that out of those lessons, which it sounds like, you know, you, you followed some paths that were maybe a bit unusual. Do you have any particular advice that you would give to young women about how they you know, choose to go about finding their path? Well, I get asked all the time about starting companies, but I think there's some applicable lessons there. I think, you know, the biggest thing that I feel just most viscerally that I wish I knew the way I know now is the importance of being brave and that the best things happen outside of our comfort zones. And if you want a different path or something exceptional or something different, I think you have to behave in a different way. And, you know, there just aren't that many people who are signing up to stare down rejection every day or try something that they're not really good at to see if they actually like it or ask for help. So I think, you know, if you want a different outcome than maybe what's the average or what tends to be around you in your environment, I think that you need to behave in different ways. And I think really at the heart of it is being brave. And one, and actually one coping school skill that I love and that I share a lot with friends is something I read in a book about resilience by Brene Brown. And she said, if you're worried about judgment, she said, put a list of the names of the people 
people whose opinion really matters to you on a one inch by one inch piece of paper. And so that's pretty small. So the idea is it should be like two to five names. Um, And she said, you know, whenever you are worried about something, about failing, you know, think of those people and and what they would think of what you're doing. And in sort of more of a like by extension, if you've quote unquote failed, you know, what, what would they think? And most likely they would think that was so good of you for trying. You prepared really hard. I bet you'll learn stuff from it. You know, you totally had the, the chops to be in there, you know, and just, you know, it's never anything negative. And I think that that is, you know, a great tool. I, I feel like I've used it a bunch and I've gotten to a place where I don't have to rely on it that much, but that's because I believe just sort of foundationally in the importance of being brave. And I don't mean, you know, willy nilly brave. I think if you're going to ask for somebody's time or um, if you're fundraising and you're asking for capital, I think you need to be really thoughtful. But I think it's, I, I really do think just the very best things happen outside comfort zones. That'd be my first piece of advice for sure. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's great advice. Yeah. <laughs> well, and of course, I'm sure one of your advice is, you know what? And if all else fails, have a cocktail. That's right. And let's talk a little bit about your current company, because I know that it is wildly different than the other companies. And I know that it has some personal connections and some family and nostalgia. So tell us your story about Austin Cocktails and just how it came about and and what the history there is. So Austin Cocktails is a line of bottled craft cocktails. And the idea, we we started this company on the idea that the time had come for just a really beautiful cocktail to be as easy as nice wine or craft beer. And that's really like the simplest of notions. However, there were a number of sort of complex stars that aligned that were incredibly improbable. And the biggest one is this family tradition that was started by a grandfather, which was called cocktail time. And that tradition was to drop everything at five o'clock on summer nights and have a cocktail with everyone around you. And we now appreciate that that was our grandfather's way of trying to make time for really important things in life that we tend not to do. Um, And we sort of simplify it in saying making time for joy and connection. And then equally significant, there was this other timing piece for us, which was there's this incredibly huge shift towards smaller craft brands in our space. We really couldn't have existed you know, prior to 2008, for sure. So we had timing at our backs. And then Jill, my fellow co-founder and sister, also had round floor drink development experience. And really in that space, learned not only how to sort of develop a drink, but where bigger companies will cut corners and how smaller companies can innovate. So through the coalescence of just improbable circumstances, we formed Austin Cocktails. And it has been an incredibly different journey. It's first of all, a consumer brand and all the companies that I had started before were really more sort of business solutions. And I don't think that there is anything more complex, but more exciting and energizing than building a consumer brand, because it is so fun to just have your finger on the pulse of what people are thinking about and what people are feeling. And I think the most, most interesting piece is I think that the most successful consumer brands are able to really move people emotionally. And I think that that's just the very best part of our job. And it sounds really simple, but I think it is actually more challenging than building a great product. I think just getting people to to connect, connected as we are, we're almost overconnected. Yeah. That we have so many things coming at us that we don't really connect deeply with anything or anyone. I think that's that's part of it. So not only do I love the whole idea of this throwback to, you know, that five o'clock and taking the time. And of course... <laughs> You know, I grew up like that as well. My parents and grandparents, and we we called my grandmother Manhattan Mimi because she loved her Manhattans. And literally every Sunday night at five o'clock, they would make Manhattans. It was Sunday night. And my parents 
still carry on that tradition. They have Manhattans every Sunday night, no matter where they are, they figure it out, they, they mix a Manhattan. And it's just this special time to sit down and have a Manhattan. And, yep. and, and it's just, it's really interesting. So I think that there is that great throwback and that emotional connection to, to really just stopping. But actually, even just to put a finer point on that, I think what is, has been the most shocking thing to me of all is the extent to which this has resonated with consumers. And I think, you know, to your point, we live in the most connected world, yet people report, you know, way higher incidences of depression and loneliness. And I think that the reason that people respond to this is that it's, there's something very appealing about that idea of just creating the space for just joy and connection, however you want to characterize it. I think it's more than a cherry on top. I mean, I love that that is what is speaking to our consumers because I think that that's, there's something really beautiful in that piece of it. Right. Well, and I think that just how you you source your, mm-hmm. in terms of consumers, what they're looking for, you know, how you source your ingredients, yeah. um, really gone above and beyond. I know you get ingredients from lots of interesting and exotic places, but they're mm-hmm. also super high end, which I think especially young consumers are, are always looking yeah. for. So. And that has been also, I mean, I think one thing about millennials that I think who are really going to change the private sector for good, and I think in, in bigger picture is we do have access to all this information about who's behind a company and what they're doing and what, what ingredients they're using. And millennials, much to their credit, are looking for uh, responsible sourcing and healthy ingredients and making better choices. And I think they're really independent thinkers. And that is, you know, keeping big companies on their toes and big companies are having to respond. And that really moves the needle. And that's such a, it's a fascinating thing to see unfold. And I love how millennials are keeping people honest. Yeah. Oh, I like that too. No, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some challenges that you faced along the way. And I particularly want to know those challenges that you, that you feel like maybe were greater for you because you were a woman or maybe were less than because you're a woman. So I thought about this and I think, you know, it's, I'm so happy to talk about it. And I, there's always the caveat of, you know, you just don't know what it would be like if you were a man. So you don't know that. And on top of it, starting a company is, you know, by design hard. It's not for the faint of heart. There's so much survival of the fittest. And, and I think a vast majority of that is totally appropriate. So With that said, you know, I think all you have to do is look at the statistics to know that women have to work way harder for the same outcomes. And so, I mean, if you look simply at salary, we talk about, you know, making 70 cents on the dollar. But I think when you think about it of, you know, if my daughter goes to work January 1st and her salary is $70,000, my son doesn't have to start work to make that same salary until, you know, March 23rd. And then if you're an African-American woman, that's even worse. I think my son would have to start in June. And and those are troubling numbers. So they're simply that. And then close to home also, we are just about to close a round of funding and I've gotten a really good look under the hood of what that's like. And again, fundraising is hard, no matter your gender. Women get essentially about a little under 2% of every venture capital dollar. And so if you kind of turn that inside out, that means for every one no that a man gets, I get 97 more-ish, 97 and a half more no's on top of all the other myriad no's that you're going to get just by time. So I think um, there's no question in my mind that it's very different as, as a woman fundraising. And I think, you know, you, you can look around and I think you need to stare those statistics down and be honest about it because I don't think that you can affect change pretending that it doesn't exist. But what I find great heart in, and I think I'm just wired for optimism, but I genuinely believe this is, you know, I am not finding this highly organized system to, you know, keep women out. My sense is it is very legacy infrastructure and there's awareness around that. I think that 
it's just going to take time to cycle through. But I think, you know, generally speaking, the circumstances we have now, I mean, well, first of all, this is the best day it's ever been for women and much harder circumstances have been triumphed over across, you know, across the world and across history. So these are scalable challenges. And I think that the more I get out there and connect with women, the more optimistic and sure I feel about certainly that we will get to parity and that it, you know, could very well happen in our lifetime. Which is exciting. And I think that that when we look at, you know, female millennials in the workplace, they're the largest group of women in the workplace right now. And, you know, figuring out a way to really help these women succeed and excel, because I also agree with you that it could be by, by the time that they're ready to retire, things could be exponentially different for everyone. That's what we're all gunning for. You know? Yes. And I will say two of the best things that have happened have involved women on the other side. A, a lot of big highlights have actually involved women. The first set of retail shelves that we got on was Twin Liquors in Texas. And there was a woman on the other side of the table with two men. And, you know, it wasn't anything that we were hyper cognizant of, but I'm, I'm sure that that mattered. And I think more recently when in the fundraising process, we crossed paths with these two women who were C-suite level women and we ended up not working with them, but they gave us sort of one of the nicest professional compliments we'd ever received. And I think that that really kind of was exactly what we needed at that moment in time to sort of be brave at the level that we needed to be. And, you know, I think the fact that they were women, they knew, I don't think they were going out of their way, you know, to, I don't think they sensed anything other than they just wanted to, you know, share this compliment. And it had a really big impact on us. And I think that reaching out to fellow females I don't think you're ever disappointed in what you will find. Or if you are, it has to be more the exception to the rule. So I think that that's something, you know, I would certainly encourage millennial women to do. Yes, yes. And creating an ecosystem of women who have your back and who are willing to make the connections for you in a real and tangible way, you know, where buddy's always making a connection. And we as women, we're, we're just not as used to that, but we have yeah. to get involved. And I think that part of the reason why we're doing things like this and, and like on the dot is really to showcase how very many women there are out there that are doing incredible things. And yeah. that, that I think that the key here is about us all sort of waking up, realizing that being you know, to see these role models and and band together because that's where the real power comes from. You know, I can't believe I forgot to tell you about this, but I just read this book. Uh, I can't remember what the title is, but they did a statistical study following men who were looking for a job. And the very simplified summary is there was a huge network effect, not even in your primary network, but the secondary network. So the friends of friends and that men had a, a much larger secondary network that they were leveraging and they accessed it at a much higher rate than women. And so they were sort of pointing to all the factors that can affect professional outcomes. And it was so statistically significant. It was very stunning. Oh, wow. So interesting. So um, just as we kind of wrap up here, I guess, what is your sort of do you have any go-to tools that you feel like you've used to reach success or go-to pieces of advice or reads or listen to's or, or whatever that really helps feed you and you know helps drive you to success? Well, there's three things that I really lean on that I didn't lean on 10 years ago, and I'll get to that. But I think... Well, I think the first thing that I definitely have learned over time is, and, and become very zen about, is I think when you're growing up, you expect life or your job trajectory or anything to be sort of a straight line. 
that, you know, you should have it all figured out and it should unfold really well. And you might have a little left turn and a right turn there. But I think the reality is nothing is a straight line whatsoever. And so I think sort of letting that unrealistic expectation go has been great. And then now at this level, I, I think not only is life not a straight line, I mean, I know that I was meant to be an entrepreneur. I feel most alive doing it. The fact that I'm at this season in life and it can be something a little bit bigger than us is even better. And so I kind of show up to work every day, never expecting it to be easy. And on top of not ever expecting it to be easy, to embrace the challenges that come across my desk. And it's a really subtle shift. I guess it's not that subtle, but you know, if you're not fighting that adversity is going to be part of your day, and then you can actually sort of look at it as an opportunity to see what you're made of, or, you know, strengthen that muscle of always taking the high road or, you know, whatever it is, whatever muscles need to be built. It feels like work, but it doesn't feel like it can wear you down and drag you down because a lot of this is just tenacity and just holding on long enough or longer than others. And so I think just the shift in perspective that it should be hard. I wake up expecting to eat glass every day, um, (laughs) but I don't think of the glass as, you know, it's going to rip my insides open. I think this is, these are all opportunities to to be a good leader or to be brave or to make change or, you know, break through whatever this barrier is that we're running into right now. And that is just a total shift in how I approach things professionally, probably 15 years ago. And I think that that makes, you know, if you're choosing to do something challenging, I think the way you look at it can really impact all the things you decide to bite off and, and take on. I think I can so resonate with that because the days that I pick myself up off the pool on the floor and come in just like, why? You know, when you're sort of like, can just one day, the day that you're crushing, if you just kind of, I, I love that, that acceptance. I, I, I probably need to get a little more zen about that sometimes. Yeah. And I'll say, I mean, we were like, you know, in a time where we were like, we might not make payroll. I mean, it was like the low lows and, and it, you know, this doesn't happen instantaneously, but we have been able to say like, this is the hard part. This is where we are, you know, gnashing our jaws about it and, you know, resenting it isn't going to help it at all. But there's something about sort of acknowledging like, this is the challenge you've, you know, you need to scale. Uh, it just changes things. Yeah. And I, I love that perspective too, especially with, I mentioned the survey that we did earlier. And one of the things that came up in the survey was about stress that millennial women are, are seeking. They, they don't want to be, they don't want to feel stress. Mm-hmm. And I actually, it's interesting when we wrote an article and I actually wrote a response about that in particular, because I feel like in a way it's sort of what we had to deal with, with balance. Finally, I think most women in our generation is like, you know what, screw it. That That is just not, it, it, what is it's that? not attainable. And what is that? And let's quit talking about it because it just makes everybody feel guilty and bad. And like, I'm not doing something right. And I think that stress may be the same thing is that they, yeah. they talk about, you know, young women talk about this and they don't want to feel the stress. And my response was, how can you harness that? Because if you're not feeling some kind of stress or that, then you're probably not pushing yourself. You're not doing something exciting because anything that you do that's a little bit hard or that pushes yourself or to your point goes outside that comfort zone that's not on the straight line makes you feel stressed. Yeah. So if you don't have that, then where are you? So I think that we have to look at just like I call it the B word, you know, with our generation is this stress, you know, this concept of stress and how to help these women manage that and see that it can be good. So I think that's fantastic advice. So what is next for you and for Austin Cocktails? And I know that there are people listening from all over um, the country and certainly all over the world, but I know we can find you in Austin, but we can also find you other places. 
So we actually have finally grown from our little trial cities in Texas, and we are in nine states. Our plan is to be in around 20 next year, which is exciting. And we do have an online presence. The laws change month to month. So our, our online purveyors change month to month. And I think we're in the process of updating those. But hopefully our website, which we're relaunching soon too, will have sort of everywhere that we're available. But we're super excited to have kind of created this new category. I think that our industry really understands that it's here to stay which is great. This is a totally new phase for our company and our product and our expansion. And I think the very best is ahead. I'm so excited. Excellent. Well, I think the very best is ahead too. And for, for those of you who have not tried the cocktails, they are absolutely fabulous. So you'll have to check out the website and figure out the nine states that they're in and go mm-hmm. after them, but also keep an eye out for everything that Austin Cocktails is doing because they're wonderful. Thank um, you. And I sure appreciate you being here with us and sharing such great advice and uh, mentorship and just leadership to our listeners today. So thanks for being with us. You are so welcome. Looking for more inspiration, advice, and direction? Subscribe to our free daily email newsletter and podcast, Four Minutes with On The Dot, where we provide you with the tools and motivation you need to get out there and be the badass you were meant to be. Tune in next Thursday, where we sit down with collaboration consultant, podcaster, and workshop instructor, Bailey Hancock. We're focused on your success, so let us know what you think by chatting with us at On The Dot Woman on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We'd love to hear your voice.